Welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian. If I haven't met you, my name's Campbell, pastor here at Cornerstone. And a special welcome to visitors. And we hope that you'll all stay behind afterwards for morning tea together. And we are in the mid middle of our series on the book of Revelation. And this week we're looking at chapter 8, next week chapter 9. And if you find chapter 8 challenging today, then... Wait till chapter 9. I know, yeah. As we all know, our, our nation has been racked by some terrible bushfires over the last two months. They estimate 100,000 square kilometres of bushland have been destroyed, 2,000 homes, 30 people have died, including four firefighters. They estimate a billion Animals have, have perished and the plumes of black carbon are, uh, are drifting out across the Pacific and out, out across to other nations. And when disasters like this strike, so many people stand up and ask, why does God allow such suffering? Because it's not just the bushfires, is it? There's the wars and diseases and famine and catastrophes occurring regularly across the world. And we ask, why does God allow such suffering? And I hope that we'll see today from Revelation chapter 8 that that isn't quite the right question to be asking. But there's a better question to be asking. I'm not going to ask it now but I hope that you'll see from Revelation 8 that there is, in fact, a better question to ask than why does God allow suffering? We've been looking at the book Revelation. We've been seeing how it reveals to us the last days. We are in the last days. The last days is that period between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his return for final judgment. And we saw in Revelation chapters 1 to 3 a vision of Jesus and his seven letters to the churches. Seven letters describing what is going on in the world and, and how the church should be responding to those things. And then we looked at Revelation chapters 4 to 7 and we saw the seven seals. A scroll, God's scroll of history, his plan for history, sealed with seven seals, and we watched as each of those seven seals was being broken by the Lamb of God. And here in Revelation chapter 8, we arrive at the breaking of the seventh and final seal of God's plan for history. Look there at chapter 8, verse 1. When he, that is the Lamb of God, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And that is a, a deafening silence, isn't it? it? It's a silence that's saying something big is about to happen, something's about to occur. Stop. Be silent. Be still. And know that I am God, says God. In the Psalms, you'll find that word salah every now and again. A word that means, probably means pause, stop, 
be silent, reflect on what you have seen and heard. And that's what we see here in the book of Revelation. The seventh seal is opened and now we stop. And there is a thunderous silence in heaven. And then John sees seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And we're going to hear these trumpets blasting one after another in Revelation chapters 8 to 11. So let me pause for a moment and, and, and just take a look at, at the book of Revelation and the structure of the book of Revelation, which can be so confusing the first time you read it. We've seen seven letters written to the church, describing what is going on in the last days. Then we saw seven seals being broken of a scroll that is God's plan for the last days. And now we are hearing seven trumpets blasting, each one announcing an event that is occurring in the last days. So what we see here are three views of the same period of time. Three views of the same period of time. That's why the book of Revelation uses this literary feature, which we might call parallelism. The same event being explained once, and then again, and then again for a third time. And in fact, we're going to hear four more descriptions of the last days. So there's seven in total, seven descriptions of the last days. And we are now looking at chapters 8 to 11, which is the third look at the last days. It, it, it's a bit like the city of Hobart, which you can look at from the bridge, or you can look at it from Lindisfarne and it looks different. There's a same city, but you'd get a different perspective. You go around to Tranmere, the same city, you get a different perspective again. You can look at it from West Hobart, Mount Nelson, Sandy Bay. You can look at it from Mount Wellington. You can look at it from the aeroplane as you fly into Hobart from the mainland. The same city, but you get the, that different perspective. You see different things, you notice different things, and that's what the book of Revelation does. It gives us seven views of the same period of history, the last days in which we now live. Before we hear the trumpets, we see and hear about the prayers of God's people. Look there at Revelation 8, verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer, and a censer is some kind of a container used to burn incense. We don't know what the shape of it was, but it's something used to burn incense. Another angel had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. And this is reminding us, Cornerstone, that the last days are days of trouble and difficulty for the world and, and for the church. We've seen already that the last days brings persecution upon the church. It, it's a tough time for the church. It's a time where the church will be lifting up its voice to God and, and pleading for his help. 
And what this tells us is that when we do that, that our prayers will go up to God like incense into his presence. And he will smell those prayers. He will hear those prayers. He will know those prayers. And he will most certainly answer those prayers. Thank goodness God doesn't answer our prayers the way we ask them. Because uh, I don't know about you, but some of the prayers I, I, I think... I remember that I've prayed in the past and it, it terrifies me to think that God might have actually answered them. And, and, and thank God that he knows much better than us what is good and right for us and for our families, for our church. But the, the point is here that when the church prays, God hears our prayers. They come up into his presence. They don't go nowhere. They don't fall on deaf ears. And our church needs to be praying. We have to be praying. I'm so thankful for the the group that's able to meet before church at quarter past nine in that room. But if there are others in the church who are able to join that group at quarter past nine to pray for half an hour, let me urge you to come. I'd love to see that room full of people praying. We pray for the service. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for our other churches. We pray for the persecuted church. We can't pray enough, can we? We can't pray enough. And let's come and pray and know that our prayers will go up like incense before God into his presence and he will hear them and he will answer them in the best way and at the best time. Then we read, verse 5, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. This is a violent act we see here. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. And verse 5 is, in fact, a summary of what is about to come with the blasting of the seven trumpets. And let me drive this point home, that this is not describing future events. The trumpet blasts that we're about to hear and the, event, and, and the, the, the things that these trumpet blasts bring upon the earth are not describing future distant events that we might think won't concern us because we'll be long gone. It's describing what's happening here and now. The things we're about to read are happening. They have been happening for 2,000 years since Christ ascended into heaven. They're happening today. They will keep happening until our Lord Jesus returns. So these seven trumpet blasts and what they bring upon the earth It's deeply relevant, most important that we listen. That's why the book of Revelation begins and says, whoever reads this word is going to be blessed. You're going to be helped. You're going to understand what's going on around you. You see, if, if you don't have the book of Revelation, it's like we're in a fog Things going on in the world, they're confusing things, upsetting things. We don't know what's happening. The book of Revelation says, 
let's show you. Let's unveil the spiritual realm. Let's unveil what you can't see. So you can see it, and so you can understand what is happening in the world around you and your place in it. This is a a love letter from our God, our Father, who wants us to know and be comforted and to understand what is happening. This is describing the here and now. And I want you to notice as we look at these first four trumpet blasts, how they bring damage upon the good things that God created for us, you'll see the link between the things described here by these trumpet blasts and the things created in Creation Week in Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to notice how they echo the ten plagues upon Egypt thousands of years ago. You'll see the echoes of those terrible plagues that struck Egypt before the Exodus. So let's look at these these four trumpet blasts. Verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire. Don't normally associate hail and fire together. Mixed with blood. An awful thing described here. Terrible. And it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. This this, this is judgment upon the land that God created on the third day of creation. When he created the dry land and filled it with trees and vegetation. And then the second angel sounded his trumpet. And something like a huge mountain all ablaze. It's very powerful imagery, isn't it? Very powerful. A mountain on fire thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood. Remember the Nile, the first plague on Egypt. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. A terrible judgment upon the oceans made by God on the second day of creation and upon ocean life, which God made on the fifth day. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. So the, the, the second angel brought judgment on the oceans. The third angel brings judgment on fresh water, the rivers, the streams, the water that we drink. The name of the star is Wormwood. And if you've read the screw tape letters, you're familiar with, with Wormwood. And Wormwood was, is a herb. And it's a very bitter herb. And whatever you put it in, whatever you mix it with, it makes it very bitter. And a third of the waters turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon 
and a third of the stars. When were those things made? On the fourth day of creation, when God made the great lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And now these come under his judgment, these things that were made for humanity's benefit. So that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And so here is a, a terrible description of the judgment that comes, where does it come from? It comes from heaven. It comes from God's angels. They're the ones blowing the trumpets, bringing these judgments upon earth. And we have seen just this kind of destruction in our own nation in, in the last two months. We've seen the, the, the trees burning and huge areas of land burning and animals dying. And we've seen the sun blackened, haven't we? That, 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 that haze that has been across Sydney and Melbourne for months. We've seen the, 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 the sun and the moon darkened. The, the stars disappearing because of the, the smoke that's in the sky. Waterways polluted. The scientists say that drought does not just affect the land, it affects the waterways and even the oceans around the land. And so there's the terrible drought and fire that our nation has been suffering has certainly affected the, the waterways and the oceans. And we've seen this kind of devastation again and again. Just in our own century, the Boxing Day tsunami in, in 2004, killing a quarter of a million people. Hurricane Katrina in 2005, devastating Florida and Louisiana. The earthquake in Haiti, which destroyed the nation in 2010. The Japanese earthquake and tsunami of 2011 that destroyed the nuclear power plant and all the, the trouble that that brought upon that nation. The great drought in East Africa in 2011 that threatened the, the lives of 11 million people. Th these are the kinds of disasters and devastations that are described here in Revelation chapter 8. We see that kind of thing, don't we, in Revelation chapter 8. But there's another thing I want you to notice. Did you notice how often you read that word, a third? Did you notice that? A third of the trees, a third of the earth, a third of the stars, a third of the sea was turned into blood. A third of the ships were destroyed. What's this saying? What's this saying? That, that's not just an, an artistic embellishment. That's not just uh, an ornamentation in the text. That is saying that the judgments that have come upon the earth have been very restrained. Very restrained. That God has held back. He's not given all that the earth has, has deserved by any means. God has been restrained. These judgments have been local and temporary, as devastating as they are. And our earth has suffered far less than what it has deserved to have suffered. That's the meaning of the third. 
So what does this say? What does this say to our nation, which is suffering terribly under these bushfires? What does it say to a world that suffers again and again and again through terrible natural disasters? It says this, that the question is not, why does God allow such suffering? And that's the question that, that bursts out of us. Why, God? Why do you allow such suffering? The question is this. Not why does God allow suffering, but why does God bring suffering? That's the question. Why does he bring suffering? What is he saying? What is he doing? And we can turn the question around and ask, why does he allow so little suffering? Why is it a third? Why is it so restrained? These, I believe, are better questions to ask. And when we ask that question, why is there suffering on earth? The Bible is very clear and it says there is suffering because we have rebelled against God, all of us. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Bible says that, that, that God has shown himself to everyone, revealed himself to all people, but we have shut our eyes to him. We've suppressed the truth about him. Now, let's, let's not at this point make the mistake of Job's friends. What, what, what was the big mistake that Job's friends made? Well, they, they, they looked at Job and they said, well, Job is suffering terribly, so Job must have done something really bad for this to have happened. And God says, you are wrong. You don't know the bigger purposes of what is happening here. They were wrong to have made that assumption. So let's not make that same mistake and let's not say, well, if, 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 if a person that we know has, has suffered terribly, well, they must have done something particularly bad. Or even the, the, the suffering of our nation. It would be wrong to say, well, it must be because of this sin or that sin. These people are suffering because of this or that. No. There's a bigger thing going on here. And the church should never look at the suffering of others with a kind of arrogance or a kind of smugness. Instead, we should look at the, the suffering of our nation and the suffering of all who live across the earth with compassion and humility. Like the, the Macedonian Christians who looked at the, the famine in Jerusalem and had compassion on them and went without so that they could help those who were suffering in that way. Like Jesus himself who wept over the city of Jerusalem and its judgment. 
Brothers and sisters, let's think about Revelation chapter 8. Let's put it in its context. Let's, let's understand from this what is going on in our world and what, what is going to happen. The book of Revelation teaches us that our rebellion will bring a far greater suffering when Christ returns. Have a look, turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, where, where we're going to, towards the end of the book. Which says that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The book of Revelation teaches us that there's a, a, a far greater judgment and suffering coming in the future when Christ returns to set all things right, to punish sin with all that it deserves. And so what we see is God restraining his judgment, restraining suffering now, because this is a time of patience. This is a time of patience. Ezekiel asked, chapter 18, well, God asked through his prophet, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And Peter said in his second letter, chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As awful as these things are, brothers and sisters, God is restraining his final justice. He's being patient while he calls people to his son and to forgiveness and to salvation. Because God sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he did not suffer a third of God's wrath. He did not suffer a third of God's judgment. He suffered it all. He took all the judgment that was deserved by his people. Remember that the sun was entirely blackened when our Lord Jesus died on the cross. That the streams were entirely dried up for him. He cried out, I thirst. I thirst, he said on the cross. Let's remember that if God's judgment upon the earth now is restrained, it was unrestrained upon his son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins and the consequences of our sins. And what God is doing with these present judgments is saying, wake up. Can't you see your rebellion? Can't you see what, what sin does? Can't you see how your sin has, has ruptured that relationship that I created you to have with me? Can't you see what you deserve for your sin? The things happening upon the earth now 
are God's restrained, it's God's restrained justice and it is God shaking the earth and saying, wake up. I'm holding out my hand to you all. I sent my son who took the full wrath for sin upon himself and with him you'll be freed from judgment, freed from your sin, freed from fear to have eternal life. And so, may these calamities, may the suffering, may it drive our nation to the calamity of the cross to see that God's full justice fell upon his son so that it wouldn't fall at his return upon those who repent and believe in him. That should be our prayer. I, I, I finish with this. This should be our prayer. When we see these things happening, let's not shake our fists. Why, God? Revelation tells us why. It's his restrained judgment. He's waking up the world to see its sin and rebellion and the consequences of sin. It's God's patience. It's God's loving call back to himself. So let's pray. Let's pray that, that, that these things will not go unheeded. That our nation will stop and think and, and lift up their heads and see that God is there. And that he longs for all people to be reconciled to himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And let's never forget that we have the greatest message in the world. In a nation that is suffering at the moment, we have a tremendous message that God is holding out his arms, holding out his hands, calling all people to find forgiveness and eternal life in him. Let's not hold back that message. It must be heard. It's for our nation. Let's not hold it back. Let's pray for our nation and let's bring the good news that there's forgiveness and life in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do pray for our nation and we pray for people who are suffering. We pray that we might uh, reach out a, a hand and, and do what we can to help, to support. Um, Lord, fill us with, with compassion, empathy. We grieve for those who are suffering at this time. And yet, Father, we see that in these uh, restrained vis visitations of your justice, we see your merciful hand in it. We see you calling people to, to yourself, and we pray that we might be ready to tell people about Jesus Christ and the salvation and life that is given in him. Amen.